Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bibles and meet me in John chapter 17. You can grab your Bible or your phone or whatever. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1084 in that Bible, and you can meet me there. We're in a series right now that we have called Roots, looking at some of our roots as Anabaptists, and that might be a new word for some of you. Uh, we are a Mennonite Brethren Church. That is our specific denomination, but we are part of a bigger movement in the worldwide church called Anabaptism. And so there is the Catholic branch of the church and a Protestant branch of the church and an Orthodox branch of the church, and there is an Anabaptist branch of the church and some others. And we are very close to the Protestant branch, but there's a few things that just make these branches different from each other. The Bible is a big book, if you didn't know that, and just different streams of the church just choose to emphasize different things. It's not that others are right or wrong. We all believe in the same Bible. We all follow after Jesus. Uh, we all have good things in our history. We all have some bad things in our history. So we're not saying that Anabaptists are better than the other branches, but that is just what we happen to be a part of. And the Anabaptists just emphasize a few things a little bit differently than maybe the Protestant or Catholic branches of the church. And so we just wanted to take some time to unpack that. What does it mean to be Anabaptist? Because some of us are new to this, including myself. I grew up Protestant, and so we just wanted to take some time to get to know Anabaptism a little better, get to know the history a little bit, and what makes an Anabaptist an Anabaptist. When I was in junior high, I grew up in Burlington, Ontario, which is in a region called Halton, and there was a camp called Halton Art Camp that happened every year in June, and it was an amazing program. It doesn't run anymore, but uh, all the, the different schools that were a part of the Halton School Board uh, would take kids who were interested in going who were artistic in some way, whether it was music or theater or visual arts or dance or sculpture or pottery or whatever, and you could go to camp for a week. It was like an extended field trip, and so there was a place up in the Ottawa Valley where we would go and for a week you spent time with other students from all over the region who were like-minded in various ways and so I was always interested in theater and always interested in music and so that's why I was there and in the morning you would do classes on whatever artistic expression you were interested in and then the afternoon was just kind of camp free time and they had volleyball nets set up and soccer fields and uh, different water sports going on and one of the things they had was sailing with little two-person sailboats that looked a little bit like that. And I had never done that before, and so I wanted to take a shot at it. And so I'm 11 years old. I was not qualified at all to do this in retrospect. I'm shocked they let us do this. But you had sort of one day where you got a little bit of training. Uh, they showed you what the different parts were. I don't remember what any of them are. But you learned a little bit about what it was to sail. And then an instructor would take you out in the sailboat, and he would show you what to do, and you sort of got the hang of it. And these little boats are really light, and there's not a lot to them. And there was a nice lake there, and so you would go out on the lake, and you were trying to, to catch the wind, obviously. And so you would catch the wind, and they were so light that they would almost flip over. Like the sail would almost go all the way down to the water, and you'd be leaning back, and you'd just be having a great time because you're about to flip over, but you don't quite do it. And you would catch that wind, and you'd ride it. Then you'd turn around, you'd come back, and you'd flip around, you'd go the other way, and it would almost flip over, and you'd lean. And it was a really good time. So apparently, after one like half-hour class and one time out with an instructor, we were qualified to do this for 
some reason. And so they sent us out, and so I was out with one of my uh, bunk mates from the cabins, and so we went out for the first time, and for about half an hour, we had a really good time. We were kind of getting the hang of it. And as we were going, what we didn't realize, if you see on the picture here, uh, these, these hulls are pretty shallow. Like, there's not a lot to them. And so when the boat would lean over as it caught the wind, and as you were trying to ride that wind across the lake, it was pretty easy for water to start spilling in to the boat as you sort of turned on your side a little bit. And so what I didn't realize every time that I did it, I was cutting the corner a bit too sharp and the, the edge was actually dipping into the water a little bit and water was starting to come into the boat. And every time we turned, we were bringing in more and more water. And by the time we realized what was supposed to happen, the boat was beginning to sink. Now, I don't know how much you know about boats, but boats are supposed to stay on the top part of the water. They're not supposed to be at the bottom of the lake. And so it was a really shallow lake, and I'm, I'm sure that's part of why we were allowed to do this. We had life jackets on and everything. And so the instructors came out in a little motorboat and picked us up, and, and they were able to pull the boat up. And so the next day, we wanted to try this again, because we wanted to get the hang of it. And so they let us go out again. And exact same thing happened. For 20 minutes, we're doing great, and then before we know it, we're waterlogged, and then before we know it, the boat is at the bottom of the lake again. And so the third day we went out and we said, we have to get good at this. We have to manage this. We have to figure this out. And so with determination, me and the same buddy who had sunk two boats in two days went out again. And this time we flipped it over that the whole thing actually went upside down. And the sail rested on the bottom of the lake. And at that point, the instructor came and said, Chris, you are not allowed to go out on sailboats anymore. And I had the first talk of a talk that would happen regularly throughout my life where they said, you know what, Chris, not everyone's good at everything. And you seem to do okay standing on stage talking to people, so why don't you go do that for a while and focus on that. So without those sailboats, I might not be here today. And so as we just reflect on that story, you know, boats are meant to be on the water, but boats have a very fine-tuned relationship with water, let's say. Because a boat on the land does no good for anybody, right? The boat is meant to be in the water. The boat is meant to be out on the lake. The boat thrives when it's sitting on the water and when it's slicing through the water. The boat's meant to be in the water. And yet, as I learned very quickly, that water can become a bad thing as well when the water starts seeping in. When the water starts invading the boat, then the boat's in trouble. So put another way, boats are meant to be in the water, but not of the water. They are meant to sit in the water and cut through the water and take us distances through the water. But when they start becoming of the water, when the water starts coming into the boat, that's when we're in trouble. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about today as we look at just different Anabaptist distinctives. We're talking about a principle called separation from the world. And Anabaptists are not the only ones in the church to talk about this. All streams of the church will talk about it to some extent. But Anabaptists would just put a particular emphasis on this separation from the world. And we'll talk about what that means as we go through our text today. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about this. We're in John chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 13. It's the Last Supper in this passage. Jesus is wrapping up his time with his disciples before he goes to the cross. He's getting them ready. He's doing his final teaching and his final encouragements. And in this section, he is praying for his disciples. He is praying specifically for them, and we can count ourselves as part of this prayer uh, as we are disciples of Jesus. So we're in John chapter 17, starting in verse 13. He's talking to his heavenly Father, and Jesus says, I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And so this phrase comes out of this passage. It's not specifically in there, but this idea that followers of Jesus are to be in the world, but not of the world. You've maybe heard that phrase before. Uh, The boat is meant to be in the water, but not of the water. As followers of Jesus, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And it comes out of these prayers that Jesus prays here. And when we talk about the world, what we are talking about is not the planet Earth, like we would often maybe use the world today. That phrase, the world, shows up in the Bible a lot, uh, and it's not always a good thing. In fact, it's usually there's a bit of a negative connotation to it. And so when the Bible is talking about the world, what it's talking about is this fallen creation and the evil that runs it. That, that this world is fallen and this world is sinful and we look all around and we see evil in the world and we see warfare and we see sickness and we see poverty and we see sin. And, and the world was not created to be that way, but the world has fallen into sin and the effects of sin and the effects of evil. And we are in a process right now, hallelujah, of that all turning around because Jesus has come to save the world. But we see this tension. We're not there yet. And so we, we still live in a world that is evil and a world that has fallen and, and a world that is, is dominated by darkness in a lot of ways. And when the Bible talks about the world, that is the context usually in which it's, it's talking about it. And that's the context that Jesus is talking about in this prayer today. That, that my disciples are in this fallen, evil, sinful world. Uh, and so we praise for them because that is where we are. We are still in this place, and this redemption is happening, and this salvation is happening, but it's not instant. It's a process. And so there is a process of Jesus redeeming the world that is going on because God so loves this world. He loves this world, fallen though it is. He doesn't love the sin, but he loves the world and especially loves the people that are in it. And so as we talk about this, when it comes to Christians and the world, uh, we live in this world and there's evil and there's sin around us and we are called to be different than that. But there's a bit of a tightrope walk that we have to do if we're going to be in the world but not of the world. Because it's really easy to go too far one way or the other. We can be so uh, out of the world, so fearful of the evil and sin and corruption of the world that we just retreat entirely from the world. And lots of Christians do this. And we just kind of pull back into the Christian bubble. And our only friends are Christians and our only contact is with Christians and our whole entire life is just church and nothing else. And, And we can just easily retreat away from the world entirely. So it's easy to lean that way. We can also lean so far the other way where we, you know, we love the world and we engage with the world that we can actually start to become affected by the world in a bad way. And we can start to compromise God's word because the world doesn't like to hear it. In this passage, Jesus says, I've given the disciples my word and they've been hated by the world because of it. Because God's word is not always nice to hear. And so God's word is there uh, to call us to righteousness, to call us to holiness. And when we say something is sinful, 
sinful people don't always like that. That's not always received really well. And so it's easy because we don't want to offend anybody or because we want to draw more people. And we can actually start, if we're not careful, to ignore God's word or compromise God's word so that we can connect with the world better. And that's not good either. It's, it's one of the toughest things I think we have to do as Christians to be in the world but not of the world without going too far one way or the other. It's a bit of a high-wire act. And yet Jesus managed to pull it off perfectly somehow. Jesus came into this world and he compromised nothing and he walked in holiness and he walked perfectly before God and yet he also walked in such a way that even though he spoke hard truth sometimes and even though uh, he didn't compromise the holiness of God's word, at the same time, people who didn't know him, people who were sinners, were drawn to him because he was also the most loving and most gracious and most gentle person who's ever lived. And so Jesus managed to pull off the high wire act. And as followers of Jesus, that must mean that we are able to do this as well. So as Jesus prays, starting in verse 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So this is where the in the world part comes from. Jesus actually specifically says, I'm not going to take you out of the evil. I'm not going to pull you away from that. He seems to specifically be saying, don't retreat into your Christian bubble. You're going to be in the world, but my prayer is that you'll be protected from the evil one while you're there. So it's not run away. It's, it's pray for God's safety and protection in the midst of the evil of this world. And that's exactly what Jesus himself did. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3, 17, that Jesus didn't stay, you know, in his bubble up in heaven. Jesus actually walked right into the world because he came to save the world because he loves the world. Jesus loved the world so much that he walked right into it. And he didn't come in condemning. He didn't come in judging. He came in to save the world and to show us the right way to live. And so he doesn't love the sin, of course, and he doesn't love the evil, but he loves the people especially. And he has come into the world to save us. And his prayer for his disciples was, don't leave the world, guys. We're going to pray that God watches over you while you're in the world. While you remain in the world, we're going to pray for God's blessing as you do that. And, and that is something that, you know, challenges us because it's easier to retreat sometimes. It's easier just to pull away, and I don't want to be corrupted, and I don't want my kids to be corrupted, so we'll just pull away from the evil that we see around us. And yet that's not actually what Jesus models for us. Jesus actually goes into it, and he trusts that God's going to be with him as he does that. We've talked a little bit about the history of Anabaptism, and as we've talked about it, we've talked about it wasn't born in the nicest time in church history. Uh, for all the blessings of Christianity in 2,000 years, we have some dark spaces as well. And so in the 1500s, uh, as the Reformation is happening, there's a Catholic church, and it's really the only church in the West, and it has become corrupt. And so the Protestant movement starts in protest to some of that corruption, and the Catholics and the Protestants uh, sort of become their own thing. They split off, and they become their own branches, and they don't like each other at all. In fact, they hate each other. Uh, in fact, they kill each other a lot. And there's a lot of violence that begins to happen with Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics. And in the midst of this, the Anabaptist movement kind of breaks off from the Protestant movement and says, you know, we agree with you wholeheartedly. We're just going to emphasize a few different things, and we're going to follow after Jesus in our own way. And then all that Catholic and Protestant hatred for each other uh, begins to turn against the Anabaptists because they were, they were going against the Catholic Church now and the Protestant Church by starting their own thing. 
And Anabaptists are persecuted mercilessly uh, for the first years of the movement. And yet the movement spreads like crazy uh, because they go around and they say, we're just going to be like Jesus. Come and be like Jesus with us. Here's the gospel of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. And people begin to join up and they begin to get on board. And so they begin to be persecuted. and, And the most common way that they're persecuted is Catholics and Protestants really like to drown Anabaptists, because Anabaptists were all about baptism, and there's a a sick twistedness in this, where they seem to be saying, if you like baptism so much, we can baptize you for sure. We'll baptize your heresy right out of the church. And in the first few years of the movement, there are are many who lay down their lives, uh, many who die, and yet even then the movement spreads, and there's so many uh, recorded things in history, uh, including Menno Simons, who was an early Anabaptist we get the name Mennonites from. Uh, He was a Catholic priest, and he saw several Anabaptists being executed, and he was so moved by the grace in which they faced their deaths that they, they didn't curse their enemies, they didn't call upon God for vengeance, they were forgiving their enemies as it's happening, uh, they went to their, their deaths nobly and peacefully, and he was so impacted by that. He said there has to be something behind this, uh, and eventually became an Anabaptist himself. But what ends up happening, and you can't blame them for this, is as the persecution breaks out uh, against the Anabaptists, and as it gets more intense, is the Anabaptists begin to retreat. And of course they do, that's reasonable. Uh, they don't fight back, they're not a violent people, but they begin to retreat, and they begin to just kind of hide away in their own community. So they start an, an Anabaptist village, an Anabaptist community, an Anabaptist region, and they begin to just kind of stay self-contained because it's safe to do that. It's safe And and again, we can't blame them for that. Uh, And yet, at that point, the Anabaptist movement also stops spreading because they're not talking about it anymore. They're only hanging out with other Anabaptists, and the movement stops. And so they are, you know, they were this powerful, effective force. People are getting saved like crazy as they spread the gospel of Jesus, and uh, amazing things are happening. And yet, as they retreat from the world, uh, that movement stops. And that just kind of makes sense, because there's no one else in the world anymore to share the message, because they've just gone inward-focused and self-contained. And so it's a good warning for us, and and our persecution is not like theirs, obviously. And yet there is, I think, a very natural tendency towards self-preservation where we just say, you know what, the world is evil and corrupt, and we're just going to back away. And we'll just stay in our nice Christian bubble. We'll stay in our little church church circles, and, and that's just all that we'll do. And if we do that, then the problem is, is who is sharing Jesus with anyone outside the bubble? Right? Who is actually taking Jesus out there? And so we need to be in the world to some extent. Jesus prayed. I'm not praying that you leave the world. You need to be in the world because someone has to share Jesus with the world. And so you're going to stay in the world. We're going to pray for God to bless you as you do that. But when we start to withdraw, we lose something. And something else that happens to us too is that, you know, we have this Christian subculture. Uh, which is just like, honestly, any ethnic subculture that we might see. We have our own music, we have our own language of sorts, our Christianese phrases that we use, we have our own values, we have our own culture, and people outside that culture don't always understand us just because they're not part of it. We also don't always understand them because we're not part of it. And so sometimes we can be so about church and so about, uh, you know, things that are good in themselves that we actually lose our connection to the, to the culture around us completely. We're not in the world anymore, so we don't know how the world talks, and we don't know how the world processes things, and we're using evangelism methods that we used 70 years ago that don't work anymore because the culture's changed. 
But if we don't have that connection to some extent where we at least know the world that we're living in, how are we going to share Jesus with that world in a way that's effective? One of the things I love about Meadowbrook's story is our particular church when we started, it was Mennonite brethren immigrants who had come from Russia and come from different places, uh, and they came and they only spoke German when they got here to Canada, and they, they would start to learn English, some of them, as they began to work here. But the church was all German, just because it was made up of German-speaking immigrants. And somewhere along the way, uh, people began to say within our church, you know, it's, this is our language, it is important to us, it is the language of our ancestors, it's the language of our parents. And at the same time, we can't invite anyone from our neighborhood to church because our neighbors don't speak German. And our kids are wanting to bring their friends to youth group, and they can't if it's the Sunday school is all in German. And so uh, it was a difficult conversation, but eventually Meadowbrook decides to add English uh, because they say we have to be able to connect with the world around us. We can't just be about us. We have to look beyond ourselves and beyond even our culture and beyond these things that we value. And so that was why, that's why we're all speaking English right now. It's because somewhere along the way, somebody said, we have to look outside ourselves. It can't just be about what we want. We have to connect with the world around us. And so we have to be in the world enough that we are able to do that, that we're able to bridge that gap, that we're able to speak the language, that we're understanding how things are, are processed by the culture and taken in so that we can share the love of Jesus with them, so that we can serve them, so that we can build that bridge and connect with them. However... As we are in the world, we are also not to be of the world, Jesus prays. Verse 16, they, the disciples, meaning us as well, are not of the world, even as I am not of it. There is a different kingdom at work here. Jesus is of the kingdom of heaven. He's not of the kingdom of this world. And so he says we are to be different as followers of Jesus. We're not to be evil and sinful. We're not to live by the systems and values of a fallen world. We are to live by the values of the kingdom of heaven. We are to live in the way of Jesus. We are to be what the Bible calls a holy people. And we've talked about that word holiness before. When we talk about the word holy, what that word at its base, all it means really is different. It means separate different from the rest. And so to be a holy people, uh, there's a lot of connotation to that word, but at its base, being holy just means to be different, that I'm not to look like uh, everything else in the evil, fallen world around me. I am to look different than that. And so scripture talks about this often. There's just a couple of verses here. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That is the, the sinful, evil world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James 4, 4, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow, James got a way to just punch you right in the face, eh? And James, he's not talking about the people of the world, but again, the systems and the values and the evil, the, the things that are opposed to the ways of Jesus, that are opposed to the ways of God. To embrace those is to stand against God because God is of a different kingdom. And Jesus made that very clear. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of heaven is different than the evil, sinful kingdom of this world. And we are to be different ourselves if we are to follow after Jesus. So we are to be in the world so that we know the world and we love the world, hopefully, because Jesus loves the world, so we can connect with the world and share Jesus with the world, but we're not to be of the world. 
Right? That boat did really well on top of the water. When the water started seeping in, the boat got in trouble. And as a follower of Jesus, if I can know the world and love the world and connect with the world, that's a good thing. But if the, the values and the sin and the evil of the world start seeping into my life, I'm in trouble. As Jesus said, we are to be different than the world around us. And in the Anabaptist movement, there are, are whole branches of Mennonite and Amish and different things who take this very seriously. Uh, even to the point of today, they will dress different, right? We've seen Mennonites in Mennonite dress around town, if you're from the area. We see this all the time. And it is one of the ways in which they say we are different from the world, even in the way that we dress. And so you never look at people in the Walmart who are dressed like this and say, you guys are Buddhists, aren't you? Right? You know instantly that they are Mennonite. They have demonstrated that to the world. And I'm not saying we need to go to that extreme, but there is something about this. I've heard the dress get made fun of uh, by non-Christian people, even by Christian people. And I go, that's, I don't know that we have to go that extreme, but at the same time, at a glance, you know that that is a Mennonite. That is someone who, who takes their faith seriously. They are walking with you. Just at a glance. I don't need to know anything about that person. I know, I know not everyone who wears it might be really on fire for Jesus, but theoretically anyway, anyone who's wearing that is a follower of Jesus. They demonstrate that to the world that way. So if I'm not going to dress that way, and I don't want to dress that way, I don't think the bonnet would look good on me, but if I'm not going to dress that way, how is someone going to know I'm a Christ follower if they look at my life? If it's not going to be that obvious, then how am I going to do it instead? How are people going to look at my life and know I'm a follower of Jesus? This is an easy way. Uh, and if we're not going to do that, then the challenge for us is what are we going to do? There's something else in this, and again, it, it can get teased and made fun of, but, but Mennonites who dress this way have said... Uh, you know what? Lots of people in the world dress provocatively uh, because they are trying to, to be attractive, and we're not going to worry about that. We're going to dress simply. And a lot of people get caught up in trendiness and wanting to be popular with their clothes, and we're not going to be a part of that because our energy is better spent on other things. And we're not going to buy new clothes every year and, and keep up with all the trends because we'd rather give that money to the poor. Like, there's a good heart behind this stuff. And before we get too judgy about it, we should be asking ourselves, wow, how much in the world am I caught up in what I wear? And again, let ourselves be challenged by our brothers and sisters, even if we're not going to go that far or to that extreme. But the lessons behind it are good challenges for us. The lessons behind it are, are not a bad thing. However, at the same time, when we start to define ourselves as separate from the world based on a list of things we do and a list of things we don't do, the, the danger of that is I can wear the right clothes, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm following Jesus inside, right? Like I can put on an outward show. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm actually embracing the ways of Jesus and living that out. And so when we talk about separation from the world, uh, for so many Christians of all streams of the church, and certainly Anabaptists, this has been a big thing, separation from the world becomes a list of do not do this. Do not do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do that. How do I know I'm a Christian? When I don't do these 187 things. And make no mistake, there are things that we do not do as followers of Jesus. There are things that go on in the world that we are to avoid. That is very clear. And yet there's also a lot of commands in scripture that come to us that are do and they're positive and they're proactive it's do justice and do generosity 
and do evangelism and do outreach. Like there, there are things we are called to do. It's not just about what we don't do. And I think the way some people look at Christians is, oh, you're the people who just don't do anything fun. You have a list of things you're not allowed to do. And there, there is a list of things we're not allowed to do, just to be clear. And yet to be separate from the world doesn't just mean the do's and don'ts. Like if we're to be different from a sinful world around us, then that also means that I am to be the most loving person that people in my life encounter. Right? I'm to be the most gracious person. I'm to be the most forgiving person. I'm to be the most generous person. I'm to be the most patient person. I'm to be the kindest person. I'm to be the gentlest person. In a lost and broken world where, where the dominating things in our culture are, are materialism and selfishness and, and everything about me and ego and, and narcissism and entitlement, I'm to be separate from all of those attitudes as well. I'm to choose the way of Jesus, which isn't always easy. But to be separate from the world is, okay, then how am I being more generous than the rest of the world? How am I being more humble than the rest of the world? How am I being more kind than the rest of the world around me? If I'm just as selfish and just as entitled and just as critical and just as cynical as the world around me, then what's the difference in following Jesus and not following Jesus? I'm not separate from the world. And so to be separate from the world means more than just the to-do list. And as we connect with God, and as we connect with his word, and as we connect with his spirit, he begins to change us so that we look more like him. Because Jesus managed to navigate this perfectly in the world, but not of the world. He managed to pull it off. One of the most uh, extreme examples of this in Anabaptism is the Amish, which you have probably heard of. Uh, and I can talk about the Amish on here because they're never going to listen to it because they don't have electricity. So they'll never catch up on this message. But the Amish have taken this, I mean, arguably to the most extreme of anywhere in the body of Christ where they have said we're going to have our own communities and we're going to keep our own language. Uh, and we're not going to let outsiders in. And we're going to stay and we're going to work hard and we're going to be law-abiding and we're going to do good things. And even to the point of we're not going to bring electricity in. Because electricity might interfere with our duties, and the Bible tells us to work hard, and so we don't need machines to do things for us, we'll work hard ourselves. And the Bible tells us to love one another, and you know what, if we have a TV in the house, we might not love each other that well. So we don't need electricity for there, because it might interfere with our duty to God and our duty to one another. And there, again, there is something noble in there, taken to an extreme, but the, the heart of it is very good and certainly challenges us. And they have retreated from the world almost entirely. Uh, they've just backed away completely. And with that, I mean, they do have incredibly close-knit families that would probably put some of ours to shame. And there is a level of purity there because they have avoided much of the outside influence of the world that is incredible. And the way that they've structured their lives, you're probably not going to find an Amish guy with an internet pornography problem. That's just not going to come up in that community because they have separated themselves from the world, and that's not a bad thing. The problem with it is, and these people might exist, but I have yet to meet a single person who came to Jesus because an Amish person led them there. Because we've retreated to the point where they've lost all connection with the hurting world around them. The last part of what Jesus prays in verse 18 is, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world not retreated from the world. I've sent you into the world. I have sent you to do this. The most famous scripture probably in the whole Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. 
not the sin, not the evil. God loves the world, and he loves the people of the world. And Jesus was sent into the world to save the world. And Jesus says, now I'm sending you to keep sharing that message in a, a sinful, evil, broken world where people are hurting and people are lost and people are lonely, you are going to go and share that message that I love this broken world. And I love it so much I was willing to die for this broken world. And so in our passage today, in our verses, it says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so for some of the different branches of Anabaptism and some of our ancestors, they read some of these words, but not all of them. So we're not of the world? All right, we'll jump on that. But they missed out on the sending part where Jesus said, go into the world now. They missed out on the part where he specifically said, I'm not praying that you come out of the world. I'm praying that you stay there and we'll pray God's blessing on you as you do that. We have an email address here at Meadowbrook uh, called questions at meadowbrook.ca. And I know we just threw a lot of information at you in a short amount of time. And if you have any questions or comments that come up, if you want to grab a coffee, we are happy to do that and keep the conversation going. So it's not an easy thing, what we're talking about today. As I said, I think it's one of the hardest things we have to do as Christians, but... Our job is this, to love and engage with the world without being corrupted by the world because we have been sent into the world that Jesus loves so that it may be saved. To be in the world, but not of the world. Love and engage with the world. Avoid the corruption of the world because we have been sent into this world that Jesus loves so that it can be saved. It is, admittedly, a bit of a tightrope act, and it's way easier just to lean one way or the other to full-on retreat or full-on embracing the world and allowing ourselves to be affected by it in a negative way. And yet there is a sweet spot in there that Jesus manages to pull off of loving the world, connecting with the world, while still walking in purity and holiness in a way that a lost and broken world flocked to him because he loved them so much and he had the words of life that they needed. Would you stand with me, please? As we get ready to close today, we're going to worship a little bit more and then we'll close. You know, when you look at the image of a tightrope and that person's walking, uh, it's one step at a time. Because if you take too many steps too quickly, you're going to fall off. And if you look at the picture, behind that person was a tether. And they're tethered into that rope. You know, God is our tether in this world. As we engage in this world, as we try to balance out what it means to be a witness in this world. And what it means to be within the Christian context as well. When I think about engaging people that are far from God, I often ask myself the question, am I being a witness still? Am I still showing the love of Christ without compromising who God's called us to be? And as you think about going into your week, as you think about your life, are you being a witness? You know, sometimes we can run away, as Pastor Chris talked about, in our own little shelters, and we're afraid to engage in the world. But I believe with the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of who God is in our life, we can engage in this world. We're not going to be perfect as we stumble towards heaven, but we can still be a witness because of who God is in our life. So you think about that this week in your professional life, in your community, your family, and your friends. Be a witness. And be a witness for this world so people can know and hear about Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that uh, you were the perfect example for us. That you came to this world not to condemn it, but to give us life. And I pray, God, we would hold on to that, to understand that this world needs you. And as we go into our week, that Jesus, help us to be witnesses where you called us to be. Help us to live a life that glorifies you, that shows people who you are. 
I pray, God, that you'd help us make choices that draw people to you. We know that we can't leave anybody to Christ, but we know through the power of the Holy Spirit you could use us. So, Lord, as we dive in this week, give us wisdom and clarity and direction and joy as we enter the world, as we try to be a witness. I thank you for this church and the history that is here and for the hearts of the people that are here as well. God, I pray that you would use this church and each one of us to further your kingdom. And for those who have come today that are trying to figure out who you are and what it means that you died for them. Jesus, give them courage and hope to know that you did not come to condemn them, but you came to give them life as well. We all ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming today. If you need some prayer or want to talk with anybody, a few of us will be available. Have a great Sunday.